Section 16 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire, the Rearguard of European Civilization, by Edward Ford. Section 16. The Great Conquerors. Part 2. If Lecapenus really had murdered John in the hope of obtaining the supreme control of affairs, he was doomed to disappointment. The corps commanders of the army were sullen, and when he tried to remove Bardas Scleros from power and temptation by sending him to a remote command in Mesopotamia, the general revolted, not to dethrone the lawful emperors, but to secure the position which John I had held. His difficulties were immense, but his skill and courage were great. He depended largely upon the tributary Muslim emirs on the frontier, especially those of Diarkibir and Merfarkan. The young emperor, Basil, was entirely without military experience, nor was the minister anxious that he should acquire any. For the present, he appears to have been devoted to the pursuit of pleasure. Lecapenus placed in command against Scleros Petrus Phocas, whom we have met at Antioch. Scleros defeated him twice on the Armenian frontier and a third time at Lycandos. He collected a naval force under Manuel Curtitius, which defeated the imperial fleet, and in 978 seized Abydos, while Scleros was advancing on Chalcedon. But at this juncture Theodore Carantanos appeared in the Hellespont with another squadron, which completely annihilated that of Scleros. Bardas Phocas was now called from his monastic prison and took command of the broken imperial troops in Asia. But he was no match in skill for Scleros, who defeated him at Pancalia on the Sangarius. Phocas retreated eastward, perforce followed by Scleros, who defeated him again at Basilica Therma in Carciana. He now fled into Iberia, but was supplied with munitions and recruits by the king, David, and again entered Asia Minor in 979. On March 24, he came up with Scleros and a third battle took place, which went against Phocas until he succeeded in overthrowing his rival in a single combat. Scleros was saved by his personal adherents, but his fall broke the only tie which bound the rebel army together. It dispersed or joined Phocas, who regained the Asiatic provinces almost without a blow. The last Sclerenian bands were suppressed in 980. For eight years, Phocas commanded the army in Asia and was practically supreme there. His exploits call for no special notice. He maintained the frontier without difficulty, 
led several expeditions into Syria and Mesopotamia, and forced the Emir of Aleppo again to pay tribute. In Europe, about 978, Samuel, son of Shishman, became king of West Bulgaria. He was a man of extreme vigor and ability, and took full advantage of the preoccupation of the empire with the rebellion of Scleros. He entered Macedonia and easily persuaded the Slavonic inhabitants to throw off the imperial yoke. In a comparatively short time, he had extended his sway over the entire Balkan inland, west of a line drawn from Thessalonica to the Danube. It was almost entirely a peaceful conquest. Few places offered any armed resistance. Samuel gained Durazzo, and thus had a free outlet to the Adriatic, enabling him to have open communications with the enemies of the empire in the west. There, in 982, Otto II attacked the imperial possessions in Italy, but he sustained a great defeat from an army of Byzantine troops and African Saracens near Croton. The troubles in Italy satisfactorily account for the inactivity of the government until 983, but after that date it is hard to understand. Possibly Phocas would not give up his semi-independent and lucrative position in Asia for a far more laborious one in Europe. The court, too, was occupied with a contest between the Emperor Basil and the President. In 986, Basil had so far gained the upper hand that he was able to take command of the army in Europe. Samuel was now a formidable adversary. By 986, he had thoroughly consolidated his power in the Balkans inland. The Slavs, who had hoped to gain complete independence, soon found that they had merely changed the mild master for a hard one. The horse had taken the man on his back and could not shake him off. To procure something like acquiescence in his government, Samuel was forced, even if he had not desired it, which there is no reason to believe, to keep the restless chiefs and their retainers constantly engaged in lucrative warfare. It is very doubtful whether the opposition to the empire was national. It seems to have depended almost entirely upon Samuel's personal ability and influence. The king's transference of his center of power from Bulgaria to Macedonia was probably dictated largely by the necessity of holding down the ill-compacted Slavonic tribes. His kingdom was almost as much a government without a nation as the empire. He established his capital first at Prespa, but soon shifted it to the more central fortress of Okrida, which he peopled by forcing captives to settle therein. In 986, he invaded Greece and besieged Larissa. Basil marched from Philippopolis on Sardica, hoping thus to draw Samuel northward, but the plan did not succeed. The young emperor was untried in war, 
The army of Europe was not good, either as regards morale or discipline. Many of the officers were mere creatures of Lecapenos, and failed to do their duty with fidelity. The siege of Sardica failed, and on the retreat to Philippopolis, Samuel, who had returned from the south, struck in upon the line of march, captured the greater part of the baggage, and badly cut up the army, Basil himself escaping with difficulty. The defeat had disastrous results. Samuel took Larissa, carried off its inhabitants to Ocrida, and then overrun Roman Bulgaria, which he conquered without difficulty, except the fortress of Silistria, and the district at the mouth of the Danube. Worse than this, Basil's apparent incapacity roused Phocas to revolt. It is probable that the president of the Senate was the real instigator, but Phocas was doubtless prompted also by personal ambition. On August 15, 987, he was proclaimed emperor at the palace of Eustathios Malinus in Carciana. The revolt was distinctly an aristocratic and feudal one. Its supporters were the great landed gentry and their retainers. At this juncture, suddenly reappears on the scene the long-vanished figure of Bardas Scleros, who had been for eight years half-refugee, half-captive at Baghdad. Phocas was therefore hampered by the necessity of dealing with his old rival, but he captured him by a piece of disgraceful treachery, and was able to devote all his energy to the task of dethroning Basil. The difficulties of the emperor were enormous. His empire was divided against itself. The army of Asia was chiefly on the rebel side, that of Europe disorganized and demoralized. From Italy he could draw no reinforcements, and Samuel was conquering in Macedonia and Bulgaria. At home his most powerful minister was his secret enemy. Basil's best resource lay in himself. He was now over thirty years of age, and had learned experience in the school of adversity. Little or no attempt had been made before 976 to train him for the exercise of his duties. It is not clear whether this was due to his warrior guardians or to their supporter, the president. But it would certainly appear that the latter did all in his power to render his young masters ineffective by endeavouring to confine their attention to pleasure. With Constantine he succeeded, but Basil was both older and stronger, and broke loose from the idle splendour of the palace. His career, scanty as are the details which we possess of it, shows him to have been not merely a great warrior, but a true statesman, who had a clear perception of the evils of the times, and was unremitting in his efforts to remedy them. He was capable of forming great and far-reaching plans, and utterly regardless of himself as of others, 
in carrying them out, patient, tireless, and morally pure. He never married. He had, indeed, taken monastic vows. In what his asceticism originated, it is impossible to say. Possibly he possessed the curious hunkering after the cloister which characterized so many East Romans. Perhaps a disappointment in love lay behind it. It had fatal consequences. Had Basil, like Leo III, been succeeded by a son trade by himself, the course of history might have been different. Of the avarice of which Basil is accused, there is no proof. The charge of ruthless cruelty rests chiefly upon one terrible incident. He seems to have been naturally a kindly man of social tastes and habits. It was in his later years, when, embittered by his long struggle against enemies within and without, that he became stern, harsh, and solitary. All through 988, Phocas was strengthening himself in Asia Minor, and Basil preparing to oppose him. In this year appeared the first proofs of his administrative activity, a novel on the ever-pressing land question. At the beginning of 989, he was suddenly threatened by Russia, whose king, Vladimir, son of Sviatoslav, seized Kherson, and sent envoys to Constantinople, asking for an imperial princess to wife, and missionaries to teach him and his the Christian faith. Basil could not afford war at this moment. He offered his sister Anna to Vladimir, who handed back Kherson and sent his brother-in-law a body of picked warriors. The alliance had important results, and Basil owed much to Vladimir's steady assistance. Then Basil prepared to meet Phocas. Half the rebel army was sent on under Calochires Delphinas to threaten Constantinople, while Phocas besieged Abydos. Basil, with a picked force, including the Russians, defeated Delphinas near Chrysopolis, captured and hanged him, and hastened by sea to relieve Abydos, accompanied by his brother, whom the greatness of the occasion brought into the field for the first and last time. The armies faced each other near Abydos, and a battle was imminent when Phocas suddenly fell dead from his horse, probably from a stroke of apoplexy. His army dispersed or surrendered, and the revolt was at an end, April 23, 989. Bardas Scleros was now at liberty, but he was old, in ill health, and half-blind, and was ready to lay down his arms. His son, Romanus, was in high favor with Basil, who offered the aged warrior free pardon, the restoration of his property, and the rank of Curopalatus, and Scleros came in and submitted. Basil was astonished at his infirmity. But, he added, we trembled at this invalid yesterday. There was a momentary hitch at the strange meeting, for Scleros wore purple boots 
and Basil refused to speak until they were changed. He then gave the old warrior a gracious welcome, and bade him to be seated. Scleros did not long survive, but during the remainder of his life assisted his sovereign by every means in his power. About this time the emperor dismissed Basil Lecapenos from all his positions, confiscated his entire property, and banished him, and so ended the long period of Lecapenian influence in Eastern Roman history, which had endured for seventy years, 919 to 989. In 990, Basil visited Thessalonica and placed there a large garrison under Gregory of Taron to observe Samuel and check his ravages. Next year he entered Armenia, where homage was paid to him by the assembled dynasts of the Caucasus region. Iberia had been ceded to him by the will of its king, David, but Basil preferred to recognize the dead prince's brother, Gurgen, as sovereign. He annexed the fortresses on Lake Van and left Roman influence thoroughly established right up to and beyond the great mountain chain. For two years thereafter he was busy at home. The civil wars, despite the humanity which characterized them, had caused much harm. Basil strove to repair it, but the steady decline in the agricultural class he could not check. In 996 he issued another novel, and, finding it evaded by the great landowners, proceeded to tax them heavily and made them responsible for deficits in their poorer neighbors' payments. He was perhaps wrong. It may be that taxation of the rich recoils upon the poor, though in that case it can only be said that human society, as at present organized, is an inverted pyramid sustained by injustice. But it is impossible to withhold admiration from this brave idealist, who believed that the duty of the government is to protect the poor, and one wonders with grim amusement how many present-day politicians would venture to practice the doctrine. In 994, the imperial army in the east was defeated on the Orontes, and next year Basil took command and swept through Syria in a brilliant raid which reduced the frontier emirates again to submission, though Aleppo soon fell under Fatimid domination. Meanwhile, Gregory of Taron had been slain, and Samuel seized the opportunity to invade Greece in 996. Basil, busy at the capital, sent Nicephorus Uranos to take command at Thessalonica. Samuel ravaged Phocis, Boeotia and Attica, but could take no fortified town, and turned back. Uranos, pressing through Thessaly, reached Lamia, just as the Bulgarian king came through Thermopylae from the south. The flooded Spercius separated the armies, but Uranos crossed it in the night, and attacked the Bulgarians in their camp, utterly defeating them. 
and all but captured Samuel. Durazzo was next restored to the empire by its governor Ashot, son of Gregory of Taron, to whom Samuel had entrusted the place, though he was recently taken prisoner in the hope of conciliating him. It is probable that Samuel's intrigues had something to do with the recurring revolts in Italy, but the loss of Durazzo crippled him for mischief there, and the Catepans not only coped successfully with internal troubles, but conquered the northern district of Apulia, which received the designation of Catepanata, about 1,000. In 1,000, Basil had thoroughly put his house in order and prepared to deal with Samuel. General Theodorokanos entered East Bulgaria and conquered it without difficulty, taking Old and New Preslava and Pliskova. Next year, Basil took command at Thessalonica and captured Berea, Vodena, and Servia. In 1002, he crossed the Balkans, overrun western Bulgaria, and besieged Vidin. Samuel, after vain attempts to raise the siege, invaded Thrace, carrying desolation to the gates of Adrianople. But Vidin had already surrendered, and Basil, hurrying from the north, came up with Samuel in retreat at Scopius, and completely defeated him, capturing all his baggage and recovering the plunder and captives. Scopius was surrendered by Romanus, son of Peter of Bulgaria, but the hill fortress of Pernek held out under his chief Kruka, and Basil failed to take it. The details of the years 1003 to 1013 are most obscure and cannot be traced. All that seems clear is that every year Basil took the field and proceeded steadily with the work of conquest. The rugged country was studded with strong hill forts, the reduction of which cost an immense amount of time and labor. But the task was stubbornly carried through. By 1014, Samuel was hemmed into a region roughly corresponding to the present vilayets of Monastir and Kosovo, and Basel was ready to strike the final blow. During these years, there had been troubles both in East and West. The Caucasian princes were uneasy dependents, and Basel had to watch them carefully. His brother-in-law, Vladimir of Russia, was a faithful ally, and a large body of Russians served in the imperial army, but in Italy signs of disaffection were apparent. There had been always much discontent with the heretic Greek rule, and in 1010 Melus, a citizen of Bari, headed a rising. It was put down by the Catepan Basil Mesardomites, but Melus escaped to give much trouble thereafter. In the summer of 1014, Basil marched from Thessalonica against Samuel, who was entrenched at Bielasitia near Strumicia, in the pass now called Demir Capu. 
Basil judged the position too strong to be forced, and sent Nicephorus Xiphias with a strong column to make a wide-turning movement on the south. Xiphias, after a toilsome march, reached the Bulgarian right rear on July 29, and the emperor ordered the advance. The Byzantine army closed in from both sides upon its outgeneraled opponents. The positions were stormed, and Samuel fled for his life to Prilep, under cover of a gallant stand made by his son Gabriel Roman. Fifteen thousand prisoners were taken, upon whom Basil, exasperated by the long war and the mischief wrought by Samuel's raids, wrecked his vengeance in horrible fashion. He blinded them all, leaving one man in every hundred, one eye, that he might guide, and sent the hideous column to Samuel. We can only hope that the ghastly story is exaggerated, but whether true or only partly so, it has sufficed to damn Basil's reputation for all time. Nor did it have any effect in intimidating the Slavs. Samuel indeed died of grief and rage, but Gabriel Roman took command and his followers were roused to furious resistance. For a time the struggle assumed a national character. Basil gained little more by his great victory than the command of the neighborhood. Theophylactos Botaniates, governor of Thessalonica, was defeated and slain on Mount Stromitia, and the emperor retired to Mosinopolis. But on hearing of Samuel's death, he again advanced and captured Prilep and Stobi. He was either ashamed of his cruelty or felt it to be useless, for he acted with the greatest humanity. Early in 1015, Vodena revolted, and Basil had to retake it. He deported many of its Slavonic inhabitants, replacing them by Greeks, and occupied and fortified the defiles to the west. He then captured Moglena and deported its inhabitants to Armenia. At this juncture, Gabriel Roman was assassinated by his cousin Vladislav. The latter sued for peace, but Basil refused all terms, and wasted Pelagonia nearly to the gates of Okrida. In January 1016, a joint expedition of Roman and Russian troops conquered the Toridan inland, still known as Kazaria, from its old possessors. Then Basil hastened to the east. Sennacherib, king of Vasparukan, a state about Lake Van, hard-pressed by the Turks, had ceded his dominions in return for great estates near Sebast. Many of the people migrated with their sovereign. Basil partially replaced them by Slavs, and having organized the new province, returned to Macedonia, though the season was far advanced. He lost 88 days in besieging Pernik, and finally retired to Mosinopolis. 
In 1017, Vladislav endeavoured to subsidize the Pechenegs to attack the empire, but in vain. Basil ranged up and down the kingdom of Okrida, wasting all Slav estates pitilessly, and capturing the royal granaries at Setania. Vladislav dared not attack, except at great advantage, and at last had his chance. He broke into the imperial line of march and cut off a portion of the column. Basil, who was resting, sprung on his horse and rushed to the point of danger, sending orders for all the divisions to support. Charging into the Bulgarian masses with his guards, he extricated the endangered troops, the terror of his name clearing away for them. The corps commanders reached the field from every side, took offensive and swept before them in rout and ruin, the last army that Okrida could array. Vladislav, in desperation, strove to open communications with Italy by seizing Durazzo, but was repelled and slain, and when in 1018 Basil reached the front, resistance was at an end. Vladislav's widow offered submission. Kruka of Pernik and Drogomuj of Stromitia surrendered, and were immediately created patricians. Basil marched thence to Skopies, and so southward, chiefs and people submitting on every side, and entered Okrida in triumph. He divided Samuel's treasures among his well-deserving troops, and behaving with great generosity to the survivors of the Shishmanid family. No alteration was made in the administration organized by Samuel for the cultivators. Everything was done to conciliate chiefs and people. Servia now came under the direct control of the empire. Belgrade and Ceremium were garrisoned, and a division of troops marched through the Dalmatian inland. The arduous struggle had ended in the complete establishment of the imperial authority in Balkania. In 1019, Basil made a progress through his conquests and Greece to Athens, where no emperor had been seen for nearly four centuries. The old world glories of the city made a deep impression upon his stern and perhaps confined but lofty soul. He made splendid gifts to the city and the Church of the Virgin, once the Temple of Athene, and returned to Constantinople, which he entered in magnificent triumph. In Italy, Melus, in 1017, had enlisted a band of Normans, and with them and an army of Italian malcontents twice defeated the imperial troops. Basil at once appointed as Catepan Basil Boyanes, who in 1018 crushed the invaders at Cannae. Melus escaped, but died in 1020, and under the new Catepan, imperial rule was greatly strengthened. The day of Italian separation was not yet. Then, in 1021, Basil proceeded to Armenia, where a coalition of Caucasian dynasts 
had been formed against further Roman extension. He was detained by a final outbreak of aristocratic turbulence under the distinguished general Nicephorus Xiphias and Nicephorus Phocas, son of Bardas. Phocas was slain by Sennacherib of Sebaste. Xiphias surrendered and was pardoned, and Basil was able to devote his attention to the East. He gained a great victory over the Allies in Armenia and wintered in Colchis, reorganizing that region. And next year he again took the field, ravaged Abasgia, and shattered the coalition in a final splendid victory on September 11. A general submission followed. Sambat, king of Ani, covenanted to cede his dominions at his death. Basil annexed certain districts, strengthened the frontier fortresses, and displayed his position as protector of Armenia by a raid into Persia. In 1024, he returned to Constantinople, but old as he was, and though he had made 30 campaigns, he was still full of energy, and began to organize a great expedition for the reconquest of Sicily. The attack was planned for the spring of 1026, but in December 1025, the old warrior sickened and died, aged 68, after a glorious reign of 62 years. To his warrior guardians he owed much, but the success of his later years was all his own. He left the empire secure on every hand, supreme from the head of the Adriatic to the Caucasus. So careful had he been of the interests of his people that he had levied no direct taxes for two years, and yet, though all his life he had been at war, he left a treasury reserve of 200,000 pounds of gold, over 9 million pounds. His one terrible mistake has been noted, as has his one shocking but not incomprehensible crime. He rose to the height of his idealistic position as protector of the poor. No man ever waged single-handed a finer fight against vested selfishness. He stood utterly alone. Even Leo III is not so solitary a figure. We can appreciate his greatness only by remembering that alone, self-taught, unaided, he swept every opponent within and without from his path. There were still to be worthy and able rulers of the state. For forty years, yet the empire was to endure unbroken. For more than a century afterwards, it was to stand apparently strong and splendid. But there was never to be again a warrior statesman like Basil II. It was in keeping with his lonely splendor that he was laid to rest, not with his ancestors in the Church of the Holy Apostles, but in the shrine of the Evangelists in the Hebdomon. And with him, in his solitary tomb, were buried the best hopes and ideals of the Roman Empire.
in the East. End of section 16. Recording by Mike Botes.